Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. The week closed with the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ both hitting new record highs. The biggest percentage gainer on the day, though, was the Dow Jones, but it did not hit a new record high. See, the problem with the Dow Jones is it doesn't have enough tech companies in it. You know, the Dow Jones is not a uh, market cap weighted index. It's a price weighted index, and so it is not being distorted as much as the other indexes by these mega cap stocks that are up. Although the big gainer of the day, Apple, which is another one of these stocks that is doing a split. I talked about Tesla. Apple is going to be doing a four for one stock split. Again, it's meaningless as far as the valuation of the company. But when you have a speculative mania like the one we have now, it's just another reason for speculators to pile into the stock. Apple now is the world's only $2 trillion company. I think the market cap is about $2.1 trillion. It was up almost 5.5% today. So Apple was responsible for almost all of the Dow Jones 190-point gain on the day. Now, Apple has a 10% weighting in the Dow Jones. So it is responsible for 10% of the move in the Dow But the reality is that Apple represents a much larger percentage of the Dow when it comes to market cap. In fact, Apple is about 23.3% of the market cap of the Dow 30 companies. Interestingly enough, though, once Apple splits four per one, it's no longer going to be the number one weighted stock because the price is going to go down. And I think Apple is then going to be maybe number 16 or number 17. So Apple's influence on the Dow is going to diminish after this split. So assuming this tech bubble continues, then the Dow will continue to fall behind the S&P and the NASDAQ when it comes to this rally. Of course, it may help the Dow on the way down when this tech bubble pops. Uh, Apple won't have as much of a weighting dragging the, the index lower. But that's an interesting statistic in and of itself because the Dow Jones represents 30 American companies. And of the total market capitalization of those 30 companies, 23.3% of it is just in Apple. And then if you look at the number two stock, which is Microsoft, Microsoft is 17.8% of the value of the Dow Jones. So you add Microsoft and Apple, you're at 41.4% of the Dow. I mean, that is a huge percentage just in these two companies. You know, you look at some of the real industrial companies in the Dow where we make stuff, other than, you know, obviously Apple makes stuff too. It makes phones, it makes laptops and iPads and all that stuff. But if you look at some of the more old-fashioned companies in the Dow, Boeing makes planes. The whole market cap of Boeing is $94 billion. Look at Dow Chemical, $32 billion. That's all Dow Chemical is uh, is worth. 3M, right, Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing, that company's only worth ninety-three. billion billion dollars caterpillar right makes all that earth moving equipment only worth 75 billion dollars so these you know old school industrial companies which used to be you know the lion's share of the dow jones industrials after all that's why it's called the industrial average because it's about industrial companies but right now you basically have a lot of insurance companies and banks in there you have uh, tech companies Uh, and healthcare companies. That's really what dominates the Dow Jones Industrial Average. And that really shows you what's happened to the United States economy, that our industrials 
are dominated by healthcare, you know, consumer stuff, uh, finance, and tech, right? Because we have destroyed, hollowed out uh, American industry. But nonetheless, right, the U.S. stock market averages, for whatever reasons, however much they're skewed by these FANG stocks, the markets keep making new highs. And of course, this has got a lot of these analysts perplexed, right? Because after all, we have this horrible economy. We have this huge recession, yet we have a booming stock market. And a lot of people are actually being misled into thinking that maybe we have a stronger economy because somehow this strong stock market must somehow reflect the fact that we have this uh, you know, V-shaped recovery. We don't. We only have a V-shaped recovery in the stock market. We don't have any recovery, really, in the real economy. In fact, one of the statistics that they're talking about a lot is that because we hit new highs in the S&P this week, we just completed the shortest bear market in the history of the stock market, meaning how long it took to go from a bear market to new all-time record highs. And we've just completed that trip in record time. So this was the shortest bear market ever, yet it's taking place in arguably maybe the weakest economy ever. So you really have a divergence between Wall Street and Main Street. And you know, I thought it was funny. I was watching on CNBC this morning and they were talking about the fact that since the stock market is so strong, people are saying that maybe there's not going to be as much of a need uh, for more stimulus. That as long as the market is strong, you don't have the political pressure to give more stimulus. And that maybe if the stock market goes down, then there'll be uh, you know some pressure on leaders to come up with stimulus. And they were saying, you know, why do we need a weak stock market? in order to get more stimulus. After all, the economy is weak. The economy needs stimulus, even though the stock market is high. So what difference does it make? Why can't we just have the stimulus to help Main Street, even though Wall Street doesn't need it? And what these guys still don't get on CNBC is the reason that stimulus is a function of the stock market is because the only thing the government can actually stimulate is the stock market. That's the only place it works. This stimulus doesn't help Main Street. In fact, it actually hurts Main Street. The only thing they can stimulate is the level of the stock market because what happens is the stimulus is just printing money. It's just artificially low interest rates. That doesn't do anything for the real economy, but it it works magic on Wall Street. That's what pushes up stock prices. So the only thing that they can stimulate is the stock market. That's why the stimulus comes into action when the stock market is going down. And of course, the reason that politicians care so much about the stock market is one, it is the only thing that they can really manipulate, but it also is like a public record, a scorecard. Everybody knows the level of the Dow Jones. It's on the news every day. And so if you wanna pretend that you have a strong economy, and if you wanna pretend that there's some kind of link between the level of the stock market and the strength of the economy, then you can help perpetuate the illusion that the economy is good if you continuously prop up stock prices with you know, inflation, with cheap money. But of course, the other thing is the wealth effect. That is something that is controlled by the stimulus. By inflating asset bubbles and having stock prices or real estate prices higher than they otherwise would be, then they are making Americans wealthier, at least on paper. But it's not just that paper wealth translating into a better feeling or more spending. It's that paper wealth collateralizes all sorts of loans. So when you have more assets, you can borrow more money against those assets, using those assets as collateral. And that additional debt generates spending that artificially gooses the GDP. So to the extent that the wealth effect can lead to uh, an artificial increase in consumption, then in the short run, it can make the GDP numbers look better. But of course, there's a trade-off there. We're simply sacrificing the future to indulge the present. So there's no real gain. We're just pulling consumption forward so that we can count it now, but at the expense of having much less consumption in the future when the bills come due. But you know, another factor that they really overlook is the impact that the weak economy 
actually has on the stock market. It not only doesn't the stock market reflect the strength of the economy, it actually reflects the opposite. The stock market reflects the weakness in the economy. What's weakening the economy is actually working to strengthen the stock market. Now, you might say, well, how is that possible? Right? Because doesn't the stock market reflect the earnings of the economy? Well, no, it reflects the earnings of the companies that are part of the stock market. Right? The vast majority of businesses in America are not publicly traded. They're not in the Dow 30, right? They're not even in the S&P 500 or, you know, the, the Wilshire 5000. They're privately held companies, so they're not part of it. So if you look at the makeup of the publicly traded companies, especially on a market cap basis, which companies are doing the best, right? Amazon, Netflix, right? Those type of companies. You know, and you got a Tesla, you know, which, you know, I've been talking about Tesla, Tesla up again, over $2,000 a share now on Tesla uh, heading into its five for one split. Um, but what's driving stocks like Tesla, obviously, is just speculation on Wall Street because Tesla is trading at a P.E. of over 1000. I mean, yes, it has a little bit of earnings now, although who knows if those earnings are legitimate or just manufactured using creative accounting. But even based on what they can conjure into existence, you're talking about a thousand times uh, potentially make-believe earnings. But companies like Amazon, right? Amazon is benefiting from the weakness in the economy because more people now don't want to shop in brick-and-mortar stores because they don't want to go out in public and risk getting COVID. And because the cost of operating these stores has gone up so much, Based on COVID-related restrictions, a lot of these stores aren't even available. A lot of the brick-and-mortar stores that people used to shop at aren't even open. And so now Amazon is benefiting from the weakness in the overall economy, right? Same thing with Netflix, right? Are more people watching Netflix because they can't go out to the movie theaters? Yes. The fact that all these movie theaters are closed certainly benefits Netflix. So it's the weakness in that part of the economy that is the strength of Netflix. And across the board, what's happening today is heavily impacting smaller companies, mom and pop type companies. These are the ones that are struggling. And so since these big companies now have less competition from smaller companies, that benefits the stock market. Also, the artificially low interest rates benefit these big publicly traded companies that can tap into the bond market. These small businesses, they have no ability to tap into the bond market. It doesn't matter how low interest rates are because they can't borrow. They don't have the credit worthiness. They don't have the connections. They're not able to borrow money uh, the way these big Fortune 500 companies are. So the artificially low interest rates that are propping up uh, the markets uh, heavily favor these big companies that have all this debt. And in fact, they're able to stay in business uh, by selling debt and by selling stocks. In fact, a lot of these companies, even though their earnings are falling, right? even some of these big companies, their stock prices could be going up even though their earnings are falling because the PEs, the multiples are going up. And what that means is you, know, you value a stock based on a multiple of its earnings. Right? And, and so the value of the stock depends on two things, what the earnings are and what that multiple is. So the higher the multiple, the, the more the stock is worth. So an example, let's say a company is earning $10 a share and the PE is 20, right? It, the stock trades for 20 times earnings. If it's earning $10 a share and the P is 20, then the stock price is 200. Well, what happens if because of this recession, earnings actually go down, right? What if earnings go down to $8 a share from $10 a share, 20% decline in earnings, right? But let's say because of the cheap money, 0% interest rates in QE, the PE goes from 20 to 30. You had a 50% increase in the PE, right? In the multiple. Well, now, even though the company is earning $8 a share, if you multiply eight by 30, you get a stock price at 240. So you actually get the stock price going up by 20%, even though the earnings per share went down by 20%, because the multiples got inflated by the cheap money. Now, 
None of that matters to a small business that isn't a publicly traded company. They don't give a damn about a multiple. They don't have a multiple. All they have are the actual earnings and the actual earnings are going down. So all of this is benefiting uh, Wall Street, these big companies over Main Street. So to say, oh, look, the stock market is booming. uh, That means we have a strong economy. We don't. It is the weakness in the economy that is benefiting the stock market. And the weaker the economy gets, the better it's going to be for the stock market. Because what happens when the economy is weak? The Fed prints even more money. We get bigger stimulus. It does nothing for Main Street. It sedates Main Street. But it continues to pump air into the stock market bubble. The same thing with COVID. What if the economy gets worse because of COVID? That benefits Wall Street. Because most of these big Wall Street companies are not shutting down. They're still generating earnings uh, despite COVID. It's Main Street that's getting clobbered uh, by COVID. Now, yes, there are some companies in you know in the S&P uh, that are getting hurt. But if you look at the companies that dominate the S&P, right, the Googles and the Netflixes and the Facebooks and the Microsofts and the Apples, these companies aren't affected or are affected in a very minimal way or actually benefiting from the extra business that they're able to do because all their brick and mortar competitors are, you know, are out of business or at a big disadvantage. And so the way the market is skewed, that the more the economy locks down or shuts down because of COVID, and now the more monetary so-called stimulus that the Fed supplies, that just continues to fuel uh, this bubble on Wall Street. So that divergence is going to continue. And it's amazing to me that the so-called experts still don't get that, that the two have nothing to do with one another. I mean, maybe when the Dow Jones was dominated by big industrial companies, right, that actually made stuff and employed a lot of Americans, maybe the U.S. stock market was more reflective of the real economy. And we had more realistic uh, PEs and we had bigger dividend yields. But right now, the stock market is a bubble. It's completely divorced from the real economy. And if anything, it is the mirror image of the real economy. The more pain there is on Main Street, the more gain there is on Wall Street. And that's going to continue. And, you know, the irony was is that Donald Trump actually called out this BS when he was a candidate. He pointed out that we had a monetary policy that was focused on, you know, asset bubbles. He was supposed to change that. He was supposed to make America great again. He was supposed to lead an industrial renaissance. But of course, he threw all that out the window once he was in charge of the bubble. And then he became its biggest cheerleader. And, you know, it's not just stock prices that are going up. It is real estate prices. We got the numbers today for July existing home sales. We had a 24.7% spike over the prior month, 8.7% year over year. 5.86 million units annualized were sold uh, versus a consensus estimate of 5.4 million units, which is better than the 4.72 million from the prior month. Also, the price that existing homes sold at just hit a new all-time record high. The price was 304,100. And again, you know, a lot of people are trying to draw a false sense of optimism from these housing numbers, thinking, aha, you know, the housing market is booming, so maybe the economy is recovering. But again, like Wall Street, the housing sector, again, is not really reflecting any kind of strength in the economy. What it reflects is, number one, the artificially low interest rates, right? You have record low mortgage rates right now. So the Federal Reserve is offering a massive subsidy to anyone who buys a house uh, with these record low uh, mortgage rates. And not only are they a record low in nominal terms, but they are a record low in real terms, meaning when you adjust the mortgage rate for the inflation rate. So the, the Federal Reserve is providing a massive subsidy for people to go out and buy homes. But another reason that people are rushing to buy homes is because of what's going on in the economy, because of the lockdowns in the major cities, right? Because of COVID-19, 
you have people that are living in these big cities that want to get out, right? They're working from home, right? They're living in small apartments or small condos. Their kids are at home. They don't have enough room. All of the amenities uh, that they used to enjoy, uh, in addition to not having to commute to work, those amenities aren't there. The theaters are closed. The restaurants are closed. There's, the museums are closed. And there's a surge in crime. So the cities, you got a you know, boom in crime. You know, all the amenities are gone. The taxes are going up, and people are working from home, and their kids are being homeschooled. So what's happening is people are leaving. There is a mass exodus out of the big cities to the suburbs, and so this is what is driving a lot of these new home purchases. Because number one, a lot of the people who are living in the cities are renting, right? Because there are a higher amount of rental units you know, in cities, right, where you have apartment buildings. So you have more people renting than out in the suburbs where it's single-family homes and it's generally homeowners. So you have a lot of these renters that have now decided to buy a home, right? And that's what they're doing because they no longer need to be close to the work because they're working from home. They need more space. They can't get it in the city. So they go out to the country where they can get a bigger house, where they have enough room for a home office, and they have a yard for the kids to play in. And houses, you know, far away from the cities, uh, the housing costs are a lot lower. So people are moving out. Now, there are a lot of people who live in these big cities that own condos. And I think what they're doing is they're not selling because nobody wants to buy. Nobody wants to buy in New York. You can't sell your your condo in New York. So I think a lot of people who own in the city are coming out to the country. A lot of people are coming out here in Connecticut and they're buying houses, but they haven't sold their apartment yet. I think they're planning to. They're hoping that maybe things will pick up and then they'll be able to sell. But I think what a lot of people are going to do, you know, once they've moved in and got a new mortgage on their second home in Connecticut or in New Jersey or in, you know, wherever they've moved to, right? Or some people are moving further than that. But I think once you have your new house, if you can't sell your condo in the city, which a lot of people won't be able to do, at least at a level that is higher than what they owe, right? A lot of these mortgages are going to be underwater. I think a lot of these people are just going to default. I think the banks are going to be stuck with a lot of defaulted mortgages on condos. And now they're going to own all these condos in inner cities like New York, like Boston, like Philadelphia, like Chicago, like San Francisco, right? That no one's going to want to buy. Everybody's left town and there's not going to be any buyers. And of course, you know, a lot of people know that, hey, I want to default. I want to walk away from my mortgage. They know that the smart move is to buy another house first, because if you default on your mortgage, you screw up your credit for about seven years. Right. So if you if you just walk away from a mortgage that you don't want to pay anymore uh, and then you want to buy another house, you know, the banks aren't going to lend. But if before you default on the house that you own, you go and buy a second house, right? So then you don't have that blemish on your credit, right? Now you'll get approved for a loan. Uh, in fact, probably what's even better if you can convince the bank that that first house is now a rental property and you have a tenant in there, maybe you can get a friend of yours or a relative to sign some kind of phony lease that you can show the bank. And then you could show that I've got some income off of this condo, right? And I'm sure people do this. And then you go and you buy the second house. And now you tell the bank, hey, that's my primary house because you don't want to get a mortgage as if it's a second home. You say, hey, this is going to be my primary resident home because I'm turning my condo into a rental and see, I've already got a tenant. But then once you get in, once you have that new mortgage, all right, well, now your tenant just leaves. Oh, well, I lost my tenant. What are you going to do, right? It's a tough economy out there. My tenant's not paying and well, I'm just going to default, right? This stuff is going to happen. In fact, it happened before. I mean, I know firsthand because people told me stories about stuff that happened just like this uh, during the last uh, the last housing collapse. So it, it is going to happen. So don't be fooled by these strong housing numbers. They simply reflect flight uh, out of the cities. And these cities are going to be disasters. As a result, the tax base is fleeing uh, to other locations. And yes, as you have this mass exodus, you're, you're having people in bidding wars, too. I mean, people are, are, are trying to buy homes. And right now, there's, you know, there's probably more buyers than there are 
sellers. And so they're pushing prices up. And again, this is more inflation, right? It's the printing of money that is helping to drive home prices because it's keeping mortgage rates artificially low. In fact, if you saw the debate that I did with uh, Stephen Moore at uh, you know the Money Show online, which it is on uh, on YouTube, so you can watch that debate. But you know, Stephen Moore made a big deal about trying to say that hey, we don't really have any inflation because look at how low interest rates are. Look at how low the thirty-year Treasury is, and we wouldn't have a thirty-year Treasury that low if we had inflation. And I said, Steve, what are you talking about? It's because of inflation that rates are that low because the Federal Reserve is inflating the money supply to buy those bonds. So the bond market is being distorted. It's being manipulated by the Fed. There's no real buyers there. And he tried to tell me that there were real buyers. So then I said, Steve, are you buying any treasuries? He goes, no, there's no way I'm dumb enough. I'm not going to buy a 30-year treasury at such a low rate. And I said, exactly. Neither will anybody else. Right, you think you're so much smarter than the rest of the lenders out there? No, it's the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve is buying, they're printing up this money. Why do you think the balance sheet is over seven trillion? Because the Fed is buying up all these uh, artificially low interest uh, paying bonds, and that's why the interest is so low because the Fed doesn't give a damn. They're just overpaying for bonds uh, and they're creating inflation to do it. So all this stimulus is doing is helping to inflate bubbles or perpetuate bubbles in assets like stocks and real estate. That's exactly what the Fed stimulus was doing uh, during the years leading up to the 2008 financial crisis. Only now the Fed is making the mistakes on a bigger scale, is providing far more stimulus now than it was then. And it needs to because it's supporting much bigger asset bubbles now. The bubbles today that we have in stocks and even real estate dwarf the bubbles that we had uh, that popped in, in 2008. You know, a couple of stocks too that I mentioned that ended up eking out some gains on the week following big losses earlier in the week and then a big rally yesterday were Uber and Lyft. I mentioned on a prior podcast that both companies were threatening to pull out of the California market if they didn't get a, a temporary a halt, right? They had a filed an appeal, you know, pending a final resolution because California was trying to force uh, Uber and Lyft to classify all of its drivers that are currently independent contractors. Uh, it was going to be forced to classify them as employees. And the companies were like, we can't do that. I mean, first of all, these companies aren't even making money. I mean, Uber is losing a ton of money uh, with everybody as, a, as an independent contractor. You know, it's funny because they're saying that Uber is exploiting uh, the drivers by not giving them enough benefits. How are they exploiting the drivers if they're not even making a profit? I mean, after they finish paying the drivers, they don't even make money. I mean, if anybody is being exploited, it's the shareholders. They're the ones that are getting exploited. They're subsidizing the whole operation. They're willing to suffer these losses so that the customers of Uber and Lyft can get a great deal. You know, and, you know, the drivers are still making money, even though their employers are losing money. So clearly there's I mean, they're not exploiting the workers. If anybody is exploiting the workers, it's the customers. They're not paying uh, a high enough price. But that's, of course, benefiting the consumer. But the fact that uh, Uber and Lyft are saying, look, the unemployment or the employment laws in California are so onerous that if we actually had to comply with them, we couldn't afford to employ anybody and we'd have to shut down, which is a true statement. But what that's actually showing you is that it's not just Uber and Lyft who are negatively impacted by the ridiculously onerous employer laws that exist in California, right? These laws are impacting a lot of other industries that don't get the headlines. I mean, if Uber and Lyft can't afford to employ people, in California. The same is true for a lot of other companies that don't, you know, don't have access to the stock market. They can't just sell shares. So imagine all of the jobs that have already been destroyed by these labor laws in California. Imagine all the jobs that could have been created, but were never created because the labor laws made them too expensive. I mean, one of the reasons that you have so many people working in the gig economy, right, working as independent contractors is because it's too expensive. The state of California has made the cost of employing people so high that businesses can't afford to do it. 
because by the time they cover all these costs, there's not enough left over to give to the workers. So the workers end up choosing uh, to be self-employed in order to be able to make more money because instead of the employer having to cover all these costs, they could just pay that money to the worker instead. See, these politicians think, hey, if we, you know, why doesn't Uber just pay the workers what it's paying them and then give them all these mandated benefits on top of that? It's because they can't afford it. And if they had to deduct the cost of those benefits from what they're paying their drivers, well, the drivers wouldn't drive because there wouldn't be enough money in it for them. The only way they can cover those extra costs would be to pass it on to the customer in the form of higher prices. But then again, the minute you do that, well, now your customers are like, well, I'm not going to use Uber now. I was using Uber because it was a great deal. But now if you have to double the price in order to cover these new uh, requirements, well, it's too expensive. I'm not going to use Uber. I mean, they won't use it as much. They might use it somewhat, but now you don't need all these drivers. So this really exposes the lunacy of the California labor laws. Of course, nobody actually wants to talk about that. But, you know, uh, when you're talking about lunacy, of these type of laws, right? These supposedly well-intentioned laws that have negative consequences. That is a very good segue into, I think, the final topic of today's podcast. And that is the just concluded uh, Democratic National Convention, you know, the first ever virtual convention. And it ended last night with a highly anticipated uh, speech, acceptance speech by Joe Biden. Now, I got to say that I think the Republicans and Donald Trump, and I, I said this in a prior podcast, made a mistake because they really set the bar extremely low for Joe Biden when it comes to his ability to deliver a speech, even one that's already written and he's reading it from a teleprompter and he's had plenty of time to practice it, right? Everybody wanted to pretend that he couldn't even deliver that, right? And he did, right? So you set the bar really low to the point that even Joe Biden could stumble over it, right? So it was a, you know, a, a win for Biden because none of these terrible things actually happened. And so I think uh, he probably, uh, you know, scored some points with his speech. And I think one of the best parts of his speech was that he may not have alienated too many people because he wasn't really specific about anything that he wanted to do or more importantly, how it would be paid for. I mean, he did talk in the big picture about how the Democrats are going to make all of our problems go away, right? Systemic racism, which we have now, right? Is, you know, he's going to handle that. He's going to tackle systemic racism. And so that's going to go away. Uh, People are going to earn more money under under President Biden, right? We're going to have a much higher minimum wage. Uh, we're going to have equal pay for equal work. We're going to make work pay again. You know, we're going to really reward the workers, which which sounds great until you you, you ask, well, well, how are you going to do that, right? What's going to what's going to bring this about? Uh, he's talking about more affordable health care, more widely available health care, all these great things that the government is going to do, right? Joe Biden is holding himself out like, you know, he's our father, he's our grandfather, and he wants us to vote for him because he's going to take care of us. He's going to provide for us, right? He's going to give us the things that we need, right? Which really sickens me as an American to see how low we've come, right? How far from our founding principles uh, we have fallen, where we were a nation of rugged individuals who were self-reliant and who just wanted the government to leave them alone. Right. Hey, just protect uh, my inalienable rights, right? My rights to life, liberty and property and just leave me alone. Right. I can take care of myself. That's what it used to be to be an American. And yes, I'll help take care of my fellow man. Just leave me alone. I will take care of myself and I'm going to have enough left over to be charitable for my neighbors who actually need it. But now you have Americans uh, demanding that the government provide for them. And you have politicians running to be the provider in chief, right? I will, I will give you the things that you need. I will take care of you. In fact, he's criticizing Trump for his failure to take care of the American people, right? Because he hasn't done a good enough job 
in, in, in being the nanny in the nanny state. And therefore, we need a new nanny in chief in the name of Joe Biden because he is going to give us the things that we need and the things that we want. But you have to remember that a government big enough to give you everything you need is a government big enough to take away from you everything that you have. And that is the negative, the downside of of big government, of big power. Because if the government can give you stuff, that means the government can take stuff. Because the government can only give what it takes. Because you have to remember, the government has nothing to give. The government just is a transfer mechanism. So whatever the government gives to one person, it has to take from somebody else. But what a lot of people don't realize is that when the government is giving to somebody, sometimes it's taking from the same person and they don't even realize it, right? It's like as the government is giving you money with its right hand, it's got its left hand in your back pocket and it's picking your pocket and then just opening up your wallet and taking some of the money and giving it back to you and keeping a big chunk of it for itself. So there are a lot of people who actually think they're getting money from the government. They don't even realize they're just getting back some portion of what the government already took from them. And, you know, some of it isn't directly taken, so they don't notice it. See, let's say the government uh, imposes all sorts of requirements on your employer. And the result of that is you're actually paid a lot less money than you would otherwise be paid if it weren't for all these taxes and regulations that your employer was being forced to absorb, which resulted in you earning a lot less money than you would otherwise have earned absent these rules, regulations, and taxes, right? You don't see that. It's money that never made it into your pocket because before your employer had a chance to put the money in your pocket, they, the government made them send it over there. And so since the, your employer had to send a bunch of money to the government, well, there was less money available to pay you. you know, so people just don't get all the unseen costs of government that they're paying indirectly. And those unseen indirect costs exceed the amount that the government gives you back. So they steal, right, with a lot more. So the the arm that's reaching into your back pocket is much bigger, right, than the emaciated arm that's handing you money that you could see. But I think the fact that, you know, the Democrats kind of put the focus of this election on Trump, right? It was all about how bad Trump was. I mean, the election was more Trump stinks Uh, You know, Trump's a disaster. He's destroying the country. He's evil. He's darkness. And Biden is the light, right? We have to save the country uh, from this evil tyrant. And of course, none of this is true, right? They are making Donald Trump out to be this evil, horrible character. And that's not the case. Now, again, I am not a big Trump fan, but Trump is not guilty of a lot of the things the Democrats are accusing him of. He's actually guilty of a lot of things that they're not accusing him of, like running up the deficit. But the reason they don't want to accuse Trump of being a big spender and running up the deficits is because they want to spend even more. They want to run up the deficits even larger. That's one topic that never came up. I didn't hear one person. Now, maybe somebody said it when I wasn't listening. But for all the speeches that I had the you know, unfortunate displeasure of listening to, I didn't hear one person criticize Donald Trump for massive deficit spending. I mean, they criticized him for cutting taxes on the rich, but not because it resulted in deficits, but just because it let the rich people off the hook, right? And now they weren't paying their fair share. But there was no actual criticism of the deficit There was no criticism of all the money printing. There was no criticism of the Federal Reserve and the artificially low interest rates. None of that got criticized, right? So there are things that Trump is doing wrong, but the Democrats are not calling him out for that. But the problem that we're going to have, again, and I've said this before in this election, is that when you talk about it philosophically, the Republicans have already lost the debate before it gets started. Because the Republicans are not standing on the principle of sound money and small governments and and cutting the deficit and and all that. The Republicans are promising more government. The Republicans are advocating bigger deficits and more money printing. So the Republicans have already bought into the argument that you stimulate the economy through government spending, that you stimulate the economy through deficit spending. So they've already signed on to that Keynesian myth. 
So now you have the Democrats and the Republicans that both basically philosophically are in favor of the same thing, except the Democrats want more of it than the Republicans. The Republicans say we should spend a trillion dollars to stimulate the economy. And then the Democrats say, well, we should spend three trillion. Well, the the Republicans are going to lose that. Because once you concede that spending money helps, well, then why spend one trillion? Why not spend three? The Republicans look like they're stingy and the Democrats look like they're generous. You see, if the Republicans argued that any government stimulus is a sedative, that spending one trillion of borrowed money, of printed money, hurts the economy, well, then you can argue that doing three trillion hurts even more. Because if you actually believe that printing a trillion dollars and spending it is going to help the economy, well, why won't printing $3 trillion and spending that be three times as good, right? It's the same argument with the minimum wage. If you think a minimum wage of $7.25 is good, well, why isn't a $15 minimum wage better? You see, you can't argue. Once you have accepted the false uh, premise that a minimum wage is good, well, then how do you argue against raising it? You just look like you're stingy, like you don't care. But if you start from the premise that any minimum wage is bad because it destroys employment opportunities for the people who need them the most, the unskilled workers, the people who really would benefit the most from getting a low-paying job because they don't have a lot of skills, but once they get that low-paying job, they can increase their skills and then earn more money in the future. Right. But once you buy on to the nonsense that a minimum wage is good, how do you argue against raising it? You can't without looking like an idiot. Right. But if you start from the premise that any minimum wage is bad and the higher the minimum wage, the worse it is. Well, then you're consistent. Then you can make an argument. A seven dollar minimum wage is bad. A fifteen dollar minimum wage is worse. So you can't argue that no minimum wage is bad. Seven twenty five is good but 15 is bad. Why? I mean, where where does something go from being good to being bad? What's the magic number at which the minimum wage goes from being a good thing to a bad thing? You see, that doesn't make any sense. But if you're logical, any minimum wage does harm. Now, obviously, if the minimum wage is really, really low, like 50 cents an hour, it probably doesn't do any harm at all because even the most unskilled labor is probably worth more than 50 cents an hour. Right. But if you put the minimum wage at one hundred dollars an hour, well, it's going to put most people out of work because most people don't have enough productivity uh, to earn one hundred dollars an hour. But if you're consistent, it makes sense because the higher you make the minimum wage, the more damage it does. That's easy to argue. What's impossible to argue is that the minimum wage goes from being a good thing to being a bad thing at some mystical number that somehow you're smart enough to divine, which you can't do. But this is the same type of trap that the Republicans are in now when they're buying the idea that the government can stimulate the economy, that this printing money and sending it out to people or sending it out to businesses is a good thing. Well, you've lost the argument, but it's not a good thing. It is a bad thing. But unfortunately, it is a self-perpetuating spiral because the more monetary and fiscal stimulus we get, the more we need because the stimulus itself is actually a sedative. The stimulus is making worse the very problems that the stimulus is designed to help. Again, it's like doctors and leeching. When you had these medieval doctors and somebody would be sick and they would say, well, I guess we got to suck their blood out with these leeches. And so then they would they would bleed them. And then what do you know? They got sicker. And so, gee, I guess we need more bleeding. We didn't bleed them enough. That's why they got sicker, even though it's the bloodletting that actually made them sicker. But of course, the byproduct of all this, right, as we're bleeding the patient dry, the stock market is going up, which complicates it more because every time they try to stimulate the economy, not only do they sedate it, but they push up the stock market which makes people think the stimulus is working even as it's failing. But the larger problem with all this stimulus is not only doesn't it work to help the economy, but it works to get votes. So the closer you are to an election, right, the more uh, politicians want to provide that stimulus, especially if you're having an election during a recession, because then it's a complete bidding war. 
right? That is the problem because even though the stimulus doesn't work to help the economy, it does work to get votes because voters are going to vote for the politician who is paying them the biggest bribe in order to win their vote. And so that's what we have. We now have the Democrats and the Republicans fighting over who can bribe the voters the most, who can offer people the most stuff in exchange for their votes. And that's why when you're in a bidding war over free stuff, it's really hard for the Republicans to outbid the Democrats, especially when a lot of the free stuff they're offering is tax cuts for the rich. You know, that's not where the votes are. It may be where the money is, but it's not where the votes are. The votes are with the middle class and the lower class and the poor. And what they want is handouts. They want stuff directly from the government or they want a better job with higher pay. And even though the government can't provide it, the government can pretend that they can provide it. And a lot of people in the electorate are dumb enough to actually believe uh, these empty promises made by politicians. So they vote for them simply hoping that a lot of this stuff is going to come true, right? That was the whole thing about Obama, right? Hope, hope and change, hope and change. Let's vote for Obama in hope. And because nothing actually happened, right? None, none of the stuff that everybody hoped for actually transpired. That's why a lot of people voted for Trump. And remember, Trump said, hey, what do you have to lose? Just give me a try because none of this stuff worked. He was right. It didn't work. So people tried something different in Trump and they got more of the same. And so now they're going to try something different in Biden and get an even bigger dose of more of the same. Only this time it's going to be a lethal dose and we're going to have a complete monetary uh, crisis, a dollar crisis and a sovereign debt crisis. So again, make sure that you are prepared Make sure that you are fully invested, that you're out of U.S. dollars. Hey, by the way, I did an interview with Robert Kiyosaki on his podcast, you know, the Rich Dad Radio, and I think they're going to air that in early September. Uh, But I had talked to Robert Kiyosaki, who is, you know, he's a big believer in gold and silver, but he really hadn't bought any gold stocks in a long time. And I told him about my gold fund and he looked into it. And so now he's a client. So he went out. And he bought my gold fund, I think I think his account or his doctor, somebody else invested in it too. So we really got a chance to talk about my gold fund. And uh, he said a lot of good things about it. And so we could get a lot more money coming into my gold fund, hopefully as a result of his endorsement of, of the fund. But, you know, gold stocks were actually down on the week, which I think is great news for people who want to buy, despite Warren Buffett's move into Barrick Gold. And of course, Barrick was up quite a bit on the week, but it didn't spill over into the rest of the sector. I mean, the GDX, which includes all the big stocks, had a small gain on the week. And the GDXJ was actually down on the week, despite uh, this revelation that Buffett was buying um, uh, Barrick Gold. And gold itself uh, had a small decline on the week. Part of that had to do with the dollar, The dollar index managed to eke out a small advance on the week. I mean, nothing that would turn the trend. The dollar still looks extremely weak, even though it was up slightly on the week. But I think that bit of a bounce in the dollar also helped put a a, a drag on gold and silver prices. But look, gold still closed above $1,940. I think 1942 and change is where we went out. That's still above the old all-time record highs. The gold chart looks phenomenal. Silver was down on the week, but still closed at 26.82, I think I'm looking at. Uh, chart there looks very, very strong. We're simply consolidating for the next major move up. And again, I think once the price of gold really takes out 2100 I think there's a good chance that we'll never be below 2000 again. I think we're off to the races, uh, and I think the gold stocks are going to have an even bigger ride uh, than, uh, than the metal itself. And eventually, you're going to see a rush of uh, institutional money into these stocks. I mean, right now, the institutional money is rushing into Apple, you know, and it's rushing into probably Tesla now and, you know, a lot of these big stocks. And a lot of these managers, remember, a lot of these guys, even though they don't believe in these stocks and even though they're, they, they believe they're overpriced, they're kind of forced to buy them anyway. Because remember, I talked about the mentality of these uh, managers who are managing other people's money. They are really uh, judged based on their relative performance. So if you have these really expensive stocks 
that dominate the indexes. And if you have a manager who says, look, I don't want to buy those stocks. They're just way too expensive. They're in a bubble. If you take that position and so you don't buy those stocks, but the indexes own them and the indexes keep going up and other people you know, just hold their nose and buy them anyway, well, then if you are going to be investing on a principle that, hey, long term, I think this is a disaster, in the short term, the disaster is your career. Because what happens is you don't buy these overpriced stocks, and then they get even more and more overpriced. And as a result of your failure to own them, you underperform everybody who does own them, whether they're dumb enough to actually not realize it's a bubble or they're smart enough to know it's a bubble, but they don't give a damn because it's not their own money and they don't want to get fired. So you have all these pressures. Well, right now you have those pressures in reverse, or they have been in reverse, against buying gold stocks. But believe me, as these gold stocks really, really start to perform, that's going to put a lot of pressure on fund managers to buy those stocks, even if they don't necessarily get it or understand why they're doing it. If their competitors are doing it, and now their competitors are making a lot of money, if they want to keep up with the Joneses, they're going to have to buy some of these stocks. So before you get this huge race to get into these stocks, and believe me, the mining sector is a tiny sector. That's why Buffett had to buy Barrick Gold. I mean, he can't buy the junior miners. See, we've got a leg up. If you're able to get into my gold fund or get into a managed account, see, we're a lot more nimble. Warren Buffett has so much money that he can't really buy these small companies because if he put enough money in there to move his needle, well, the price of the stocks would skyrocket. And so the bargains that he was trying to cash in on would disappear as he was trying to buy them. But my fund is still small enough. I mean, my gold fund is still under $300 million and, you know, and we have a very diversified portfolio. And so we can buy a lot of these stocks, a lot of these smaller junior miners. We're small enough to be able to position into these companies without having a material impact on the share price. So we can build a portfolio that's much better than the one Buffett could build because Buffett is too big. He's like a gigantic whale and he's now in a, in a fishbowl and his opportunities are limited, right? So this is a chance where the small guy actually can do better than the big guy because the big guy can't avail himself of these opportunities that the little guy can. So while we still have these opportunities and before we start competing with more Warren Buffets of the world, right, uh, this is the time to invest. So anyway, check out the fund. Uh, talk to uh, the brokers at Europe Pacific Capital, europac.com or Europe Pacific Asset Management. Have a great weekend, everybody. And I'm sure we're going to have a very, very volatile week next week. Thank you.